Happy New Year. Welcome to Dismantling Injustice. We're kicking off 2023 by talking about mental health care. In New York City, the mayor has released a polarizing proposal which would allow police officers to detain and forcibly institutionalize individuals having a mental health crisis. Now from our end, there are so many problems with this proposal, but it also has us thinking about how our city and the U.S. more broadly addresses mental health. So that's our theme this month. Now this episode, we're talking to Jeffrey Severe, who is the community organizer for justice, health equity, and safety in the office of New York City public advocate, Jamani Williams, who has put out other ideas about how we address mental health without criminalizing individuals who may face a crisis. So when we come back, we'll be joined by Jeffrey. Welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. You know, as I mentioned, today we're talking about mental health. And I've heard uh, public advocate Williams, Shimani, talk about mental health um, many, many, many times over the years. Um, and you are currently leading uh, the public advocate's work on mental health, mental illness, and public safety. I imagine your job has become even more relevant and pressing in the last few months. Can you tell us just a little bit about the work you do in this role and just more broadly um, the public advocate's approach to mental health in New York City? Okay, so the work that I do in this role, it would help to identify first off what the unit does, and it's the Justice, Health Equity, and Safety Unit. So obviously, kind of all of those pieces fit in the role about mental health. The justice aspect about making sure that ensuring that folks get um, get just treatment from all our city institutions, whether that's be the police, whether that be um, our social services, or whether that be that even when we're dealing with our hospitals and whatnot. And then also, you know, in terms of health equity, making sure that folks get compassionate care and access to care, because that's usually like kind of the barrier. You can like stop a lot of things on the front end. And also just as well as keeping folks safe, whether from themselves, from folks, individuals meaning to harm them, and just for from triggers and things around them that might put them in a unfortunate situation. But also, so more broadly, the public advocate's approach to like our city's infrastructures, our job is to be a watchdog to make sure that the city is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. And I think that our role here means that we're closely monitoring any sort of new initiatives or programs that the mayor or our past administrations or, this, or the governor have rolled out and to see how they impact of citizens of the city of New York and to make sure that there's someone who works in city government that is just making sure that things are moving and operating correctly for them. So that's really our role, just to kind of like watchdog and be like, okay, you might have uh, interactions with ACS or you might have interactions with um, getting your SNAP benefits, but it puts your, there's certain ways that it might put your mental health at risk. We just make sure that we are here to kind of like highlight little ways like, hey, you have a policy that impacts people, folks negatively in this way. So we might alert that we might alert the administration about that. We might partner with community orgs about that just to make sure that all folks are getting as much access to proper care as possible. That makes complete sense. Um, now, the Public Advocates Office has released a couple of reports um, related to mental health in 2019 and then again in October of last year. You all re released a report on improving New York City's response to individuals in mental health crisis. Who would have known it would become so timely? Um, but your report, the report included recommendations to invest in non-police responses to the mental health crisis. You know, I know that this is something that's gained traction 
here in New York, but across the country over the last few years, I was part of a commission that de Blasio's office um, tried to pull together on this. But can you tell us a bit more about what was in the report that you all released? Sure. Um, so some of the things that, first of all, um, thank you for even attempting to do some of that work. And I know prior administrations have done, and there's so many folks that come before me, and even in this office, in this role, um, most notably like our my former colleague, uh, Rama Issa Ibrahim, who was one of the real spearheads of our 2019 mental health report. But a lot of what we found out in that report which is like kind of just prior to COVID was the idea that calls with folks who were having emotional issues, like kind of like had doubled in the last 10 years. Um, crisis intervention training for police officers had um, had launched, but it was also kind of like questionable in statistics of how many police officers um, were actually taking the training. So um, also that we had a number of folks who were killed by police officers in their response. So like name to name, Deborah Danner, Kowalski Trowick, Saheed Vassal, to name a few. And so really just, we're just highlighting in fact, the kind of like the shortcomings in the system. And basically even the fact that, you know, some of the, some of the offerings that the city had, which were while good ideas were not always implemented in the right ways, where we had like, we evaluated the fact that the city had like respite centers, which are places that folks can have like kind of a one week stay to help them stabilize them if they're having issues with like housing, mental health or substance abuse. Like we realized that there were eight of those previously at around 2019, but they dropped to four in 2022 when we had a real issue with COVID and folks' mental health were struggling. We looked at the drop-in centers for folks who were, had issues with homelessness, which are real centers that have resources for folks all throughout the city. And there were five of them previously. And then there were only seven. So that, they were, that, so that means there was only an increase of two um, since 2019, which and as the city decides of New York and the way these issues go, that's just quite not enough. And then we also kind of looked at the mental health urgent cares and realized that at that time, in 2019, when we dropped the report, there was zero, and we were kind of like modeling Los Angeles, who had plenty of them. And I know that we now have two in 2022, but again, still, we could do more. Um, and we also had the idea of like safe havens, which are places that folks who um, who are unhoused and homeless who might have issues with substance abuse again, and they're kind of like emergency places that they go to and like just a safe harbor, a safe haven. And those, while they increase, and I think the mayor made promises about whether or not the number of beds would increase as well, there was, you know, there's more work to be done everywhere. And a lot of it comes down to funding and commitment to what we want to get done. And how that all relates to public safety is the fact that if you get in on the front end of these things, then it's easy to, you don't have to worry about the, how you react to things if you kind of prevent them from happening. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it makes complete sense. You know, we always talk about, we invested in the front end and some of the basic needs like mental health care and housing, education and jobs then we wouldn't have to worry about safety as much on the back end. Totally makes sense. You started talking about the lack of capacity of the city to really address the mental health crisis holistically. And coincidentally, shortly after the most recent report was released, uh, the mayor unveiled a plan to involuntarily hospitalize people who appear to be having a mental health crisis um, from the city streets and subways, uh, the police would be the entity most likely that carries this out. Jamani, public advocate Williams, has been publicly critical of this plan. And we at Envision Freedom have our own concerns. We've also been publicly critical. I guess the question is, what flags does this raise for you? Thank you. And I love how you kind of position that as if our report and then coming weeks later was the mayor's response. I think with our egos, we would love to think that we kind of spurred that, like they had to get a move on on things and come up with something, whether or not rollout was effective. But thank you for that kind of value. But um, I think one of the first things that we kind of flagged for ourselves, one 
obviously like was funding was where are the additional resources going to like, let's say hospitals, folks who work in EMS and FDNY in terms of their ability to contribute, even in terms of the NYPD, because we, you know, NYPD would have a lot more involvement. So what extra funding was going on? was going to be going towards them? What kind of extra training was going to be going on to folks who were going to be interacting with folks on the street? Um, how would folks be getting referrals and treatment? Like, what was the continuum of care going to look like in the hospitals when folks might be evaluated or when folks might be discharged? What's going to aftercare look like? Of course, the number one thing that works throughout public safety that we have to name is, of course, supportive housing. So it's like if you're looking at folks, you're interested in taking folks in, what are you doing after they get out or ensure that they're stabilized? And also, like, the number of beds, like psychiatric beds and beds that can help mm-hmm. folks stabilize again, like, not just through New York City, but through New York State. And, you know, just making sure that we're, like, have, giving every everyone culturally competent and affordable care. And, you know, we can't do that without deep investment. So a lot of it was questions about funding. I didn't name the most obvious thing, which is also that we're talking about the folks being on the streets and being interacted with NYPD officers. And that's a huge flag and concern for us mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, just the history of the city and with folks who have mental health crises and how they're being responded to by um, NYPD, just like the folks I kind of previously named, like Deborah Dana, Saheed Vassal, to name a few. Great minds think alike. I was just about to say that. Um, you know, I think it's unbelievable that law enforcement agencies have become, in many ways, like the de facto mental health providers um, in the city and across the country, really. Police officers are becoming social workers. Um, and then jails and prisons have sort of become the de facto provider of mental health care in New York City. Rikers Island is the largest provider of mental health services in the state. You know, beside the outright deadly conditions at Rikers, um, along with the 19 deaths of people in um, DOC custody last year, we know that Rikers is just notoriously inadequate at providing both physical and mental health care. C-2020 as an example, when, it, when we were dealing with COVID. I guess from your perspective, why are jails the wrong place for mental care and treatment. You kind of built that in that the idea that Rikers Island is commonly referred to as like one of the biggest responders to like folks who have mental health issues in the country, not like the city, not like the state, but in the country because of the number of people that we house. So it's really kind of a terrible place to have folks get mental health services because, you know, we'll see that like half the population has some sort of mental health issues. 15% of them have serious issues. There are not enough units to kind of respond to that. The intake process can be slow. Um, and that's when folks would be initially screened for that. And you see folks like there's an example of like Brandon Rodriguez who committed suicide about how long his intake screening came. Um, so there's just a lot of like failures and gaps. Jail is not the place where folks going to get the compassionate care that I spoke to and are going to get the stabilization that I spoke to because there can be a really chaotic environment. And every single trigger that people have that will lead them to doing destructive things or going or having an episode would be found in our jails and prison system. And that's usually kind of our last rung of society where we just kind of we don't know what to do with folks. So we're just going to throw them into jail or into hospitals and that's just never, never, never has worked. Yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. Um, When I was a public defender, that was exactly it. Like homeless people, we don't know what to do. They're sleeping on the train, put them in jail. Someone's sleeping on the street, put them in jail. Someone with facing a mental health crisis, put them in jail. Um, Jails really are in many ways the solution that we turn to when problems feel too big. Um, or when there's the lack of political and economic will to address them. 
Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund. Envision Freedom is a New York-based nonprofit organization that works to dismantle the unjust and oppressive immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical and most urgent needs of individuals impacted by these systemic injustices in the present. You can learn more about our work by visiting us online at envisionfreedom.org or by following us on social media. You know, my last question, because we we sort of pride ourselves here on not just being about the problem and not just being the group that complains about what's wrong, but also uplifting solutions and actively working toward them. And so I guess my question is, what are some other solutions for supporting the mental health and well-being of New Yorkers that don't contribute to cycles of incarceration and destabilization and poverty. I think a lot of these issues, are, um, they, they begin in the community and they will be solved in the community. But what our job as government, um, my, my role in here as government is to make sure that there's infrastructure um, it takes place. That's why we released that report is to say, hey, here are the supports that we have. We have the great ideas that we have. We just have issues with implementation. So some of the things that we have, we know like the Treatment Not Jails Act, which is out there with the idea of like diverting folks away from the criminal justice system because you shouldn't be penalizing folks if they're unhoused or if they have a substance abuse issue or if they have mental health crises. Um, also making sure that there are pretrial diversions to ensure that, hey, this person has, a, there's a flag that this person might have issues which contributed to them being like repeatedly involved in this system. So how do we best get them supports before we send them to a place which might harm them more? How do we send them to a place that could be more helpful to them? And then also when folks leave, because we have a lot of the conversations in the, in the city and the state and the country about like bail, about recidivism. One of the number one things we can do is just make sure we partner with community orgs, like CBOs that already exist. And make sure that transitional services are there and that there's supports for folks there. Same thing we're talking about folks who have mental health issues to like make sure there's a continuum of care when they leave the hospital where if they have a diagnosis or if they have a medical appointment that they're supposed to be going to, they have prescriptions that we're supposed to be, they're supposed to be getting. They need access to adequate health care. They need supportive housing. They need addresses to go to. It's the exact same thing for folks who are being released from prisons and jails because I mean, if you're being released and it makes sense that you would have peers or folks that have been through what you have been through to be able to kind of guide you like, hey, you're going to come home and you have no ID. You're going to come home. You have no bank account. You're going to come home and technology might have moved forward. You're going to come home and there's issues in being able to access government benefits. There's going to be issues in terms of you being able to access or apply for a particular housing or apartments. You need all of that. And I think that all we can do is like continue to bolster the system and to make sure that folks have all of these things readily available and eliminate as many barriers as possible. Because it's really that I find in the city, state, and it's this country is that everything is there, everything is available to everyone. It's just really about the access to it. It's like the narrow few have access. So just really just building up these supports and making sure that folks who care are plugged in with folks who need care and just being compassionate and really just being about that life and being about the work. And just to kind of like separate myself a little bit from the office and a public advocate, I definitely just think like personally that, you know, we really have to show people that we care. And but we show people why we care by funding things, by deep investments. So we always say that the kind of like the budget really tells what you think, right? So if you're investing mm -hmm. more than you're investing into like law enforcement or criminal justice system, then you are into supports for communities and education and childcare and housing for all, then you kind of really, really have to look at what your priorities. So because your budget kind of belays your priorities. So I think that's really kind of our posture. And that's that's kind of where I, I work in this office. And I'm really deeply proud to be here and work for the public advocate who's been a real big champion, especially on mental health for so long. I've declined to even earlier mention, like, you know, the idea of like the new 988 number that, that's rolled out based on what the public advocate has been saying for a number of years. So we've really been leading on these issues, but we're not 
we're not saying that that's enough because even though we're leading, the city is not is still kind of failing in a way. So we just want to continue and continue to push forward and forward and like come up with some ideas, support folks who are already doing the work, amplify as many folks as possible and just continue on. That is so well said. And, you know, from my perspective and our perspective at Envision Freedom Fund, it's um just so refreshing to know that there are folks working in government like you and like the public advocate that are thinking of ways of about ways of pulling people out of the criminal legal system and ways of decarcerating and ways of you know investing on the front end the resources that communities need um, in order to thrive and in order to really um, and truly produce public safety and so. It's just, it's so great when folks that think like us are actually working on that side in government. Um, Because as you said, when we look at budgets, budgets are very much policy documents. And you can tell cities or government's um, priorities by just looking at their budgets. And so um, thank you for fighting the good fight from the public advocate's office. I know that it's not always easy. You all... um, in Jemani's office are very courageous. You often take positions that run against the status quo um, and against um, the positions that a lot of other policymakers stake out. And we, as folks that do community work, are happy that you do so. Like you said, deep investment, having folks who think differently in government um, and who are not af- afraid to like have new ideas. But we also couldn't do any of the work without folks like you who have been on the ground and you like personally, because I know you've been out doing the work for a very long time. So make sure you don't sell yourself short there. So thank you so much for the time and just even be able to communicate and get our ideas off. Thanks again for joining us. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund, an organization that works to transform the immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical needs of individuals impacted by these systems daily. To learn more about our work and donate, visit us at envisionfreedom.org. That's envisionfreedom.org. Dismantling Injustice was created by Sally Israel. Our executive producer is Abigail Wolf. This podcast is produced and engineered by Yassi Solutions and hosted by Carl Hammett Lipscomb. That's me. Special thanks to the team at Envision Freedom for being amazing. Until we're all free, peace out.